Hello, and welcome to the Time Traveler Dispatch. Today, we are talking about mind control and mental health and crime. But before we get into any of that stuff, I just want to do a quick sort of like programming note about scheduling on these bonus podcasts. So I'm going to start releasing them um, the week after the main episode comes out. So obviously, today is Tuesday. It's been one week since the mind control episode came out. Um, And this is going to be kind of the new schedule for them. I found that I was spending my weekends doing these often, and I am trying to reclaim just a little bit of weekend time for me to do other things. So um, you're going to get these on like Mondays or Tuesdays is the week after the episode goes up. So don't worry if it's not in your feed. Um, That's why. Okay. Uh, Back to mind control. So I have a ton of stuff for you on this bonus episode. We cut a lot of stuff. Um, As you know, I took last episode off, so I had extra time. And instead of just like resting, I spent a lot of it doing over-reporting for this particular episode. Um, So the first cut of the main episode for this one was almost 90 minutes long. Obviously, I try to keep them to 60. So we had to trim out a ton of stuff. Um, So today, you're going to hear a lot of that stuff. Uh, We're going to talk about who Sidney Gottlieb was a little bit more and about his kind of like weird, contradictory life. We're going to talk about the history of the idea of psychopaths a little bit more um, and why the personality test that supposedly identifies them is probably wrong. Um, We're going to talk about why a lot of experts roll their eyes at one modern psychologist in particular and his sort of various talks about the psychopathic brain um, and his own self-diagnosis as a psychopath. Uh, We're also going to cover the history of the idea of protest psychosis a little bit more, as well as the history of institutionalization and prisons and why criminology experts think that there are so many folks with mental health diagnoses behind bars right now. Um, Plus, we're going to talk about some potential side effects of neural implants that make decisions for you or impact your decision-making process, and probably some other stuff that I am forgetting uh, right now. But it's a lot of stuff. Uh, Just get ready because we're going to cover a whole bunch of things that kind of like complement the stuff we talked about on the episode or just go a little bit deeper. Um, As always, this is going to make a lot more sense if you've heard the main episode. Um, So obviously go listen to that before you listen to this. Uh, And it's probably obvious, but I figure I might as well say it here as well. We are going to continue talking about some of the really intense stuff that was in the episode, which includes things like violent crime, torture, pedophilia, prison, and abuse. So just be aware that that is in here too. Um, And so if that's not something you're game or want to listen to right now, totally cool. But that's kind of going to be in here as well. Okay, so first, Sidney Gottlieb. So we talked about how he was recruited to run this program, MKUltra, at the CIA. But the thing we didn't get to talk about is how his sort of personal identity connected to this assignment, or in some cases, didn't. So here's Stephen Kinzer. He was very different from the other members of the early CIA. They were all silver spoon products of the American aristocracy, the parents had gone to the same golf clubs and they went sailing together and they went to the same social clubs and colleges and worked at the same law firms and so forth. Sidney Gottlieb was not like that. He was the child of Jewish immigrants who grew up at the Bro- in the Bronx and went to City College. And Stephen thinks that it might actually be that kind of outsider identity that made Sidney Gottlieb the perfect person to run MK Ultra. You can always say, well, I had no idea that one crazy guy was running so far off the rails. And if it so happens that the guy you've assigned to run that project, in this case, MKUltra, is way outside your social circle, like he's not a waspy guy who has vacation places in Connecticut, but he's uh, what they used to call at the CIA, that, that limping, uh, stuttering Jew, it's so much easier 
to dump everything on him. And I think they might've thought this even while it was going on. They might've thought, hey, what, what Gottlieb is doing is probably really crazy. He's probably killing a lot of people. And if it ever comes out, we can just say, whoa, that Sydney was crazy. And we'll throw him under the bus without any compunctions, uh, either morally or socially. Reading Stephen's book, I was really struck by just how, um, I don't, it's a hard to, there's a hard to find a word for it, but like contradictory, I guess would be a word for it, um, Gottlieb's life was. So in some ways, he is almost like a cartoon villain, right? Trying to destroy people's minds and control them in these really horrific ways. Um, But in the rest of his life, he has sort of a different side. Gottlieb is one of those people that is sort of hard to get your head around, Um, because you kind of read about him and you wonder, like, how did one person do and believe all of these different things? There were so many contradictions in his life. He became not only the director of this incredibly brutal and bloody project, but he was also a truly convinced humanitarian. He was an eco-freak in the 50s, like a proto-hippie. He lived in a cabin in the woods with no running water. And he got up before dawn to milk his goats. He, he grew his own vegetables. He wrote poetry, studied Zen. Uh, and later in life, as you point out, he dedicated himself to things like working in, uh, in the prisons, working with uh, volunteering with children who had speech defects, which he also had. Uh, so he was this deep humanitarian at the same time that he was carrying out this uh, MK Ultra project. So I sometimes used to imagine him driving home from work from the CIA headquarters right next to what's now the Kennedy Center. Um, and then back to his cabin in Virginia. Did he kind of leave behind this uh, really nefarious identity the way a snake leaves a skin behind as he crossed over a bridge and and headed into Virginia? How do these two things coexist? Uh, So I had to ask myself this. And of course, Gottlieb did not leave us any clues. Gottlieb lived in total anonymity. Nobody knew who he was or what he was doing. And that's why writing this book was something like writing the biography of a person who did not exist. He really left so few footprints. And therefore, we have no idea how he would have justified himself. I did find a couple of snippets. There's a moment when he testifies in front of a few congressional investigators and takes pains to say, I want you to know that I found a lot of this work very distasteful and very painful, although it was very necessary. So what I extrapolate from this is that Gottlieb may have felt uh, that it really was awful to kill people that were innocent and to torture people to death, which is what his experiments effectively amounted to. But the threat to the United States was so great and so imminent that uh, the loss uh, or sacrifice of certain number of hundreds of lives or whatever it was, was justified. And the lesson I think we have to take from that is uh, to be very careful in weighing this moral calculus. You can always work yourself up through threat inflation into believing that apocalypse is right around the corner and therefore extreme uh, measures and projects which we would never consider under normal circumstances, must be necessary just during this particular moment. 
But this particular moment never seems to end. There always seems to be another justification for this. And I think Gottlieb got perhaps caught up in the ethos of his age about the, how the Soviets were about to destroy every possibility of meaningful human life on earth. And this could happen any second uh, that he lost his perspective and began to think that sacrificing real human lives in order to protect kind of the diffuse threat that he imagined was out there was justified. I think that this connects to the point that Steph Griffiths was making about psychopathy, which is that it's not only scientifically kind of inaccurate to believe that people who do horrible things must have something wrong with their brains, whatever that means. Um, It is also dangerous because it allows us to believe that we are not like that, that we are not capable of those things. Um, Talking to Stephen and reading his book, I was reminded of another book called The Nazi and the Psychiatrist by Jack L. High, which is about this psychiatrist named uh, Dr. Douglas M. Kelly, who was brought in to evaluate the minds of high-level Nazis like Hermann Goring. Um, And he assumed that these men who did these really, truly horrific things, I mean, there's kind of like nothing more horrific than genocide. Um, He assumed that they would be sick, that they would have some kind of like mental illness or have something wrong with them that drove them to this kind of extreme evil. And what he found when he evaluated them was that, no, there was nothing, quote unquote, wrong with these people. They did not have any kind of mental illness. They were simply evil and doing really evil things. And that is sort of like the most terrifying piece of this, right? That this kind of evil, the most evilest of evil, sort of lives in almost anybody, could be almost anybody. Absolutely. I found that this was uh, one of the great aspects of the story because it raises some very deep questions. Uh, are, are there limits to the amount of evil that you can do in a righteous cause before the evil begins to outweigh the righteousness? This desire to have there be something really physically wrong with evil people is obviously connected to the history of the idea of the psychopath. And one thing we didn't really talk about is that the idea of sort of the physical link between, you know, evil and crime and the brain and the psychopath actually comes out of something called degeneration theory. So here's Yarko Yalava talking about that. Now, the basic idea behind the degeneration theory is that there's a force that counteracts evolution. So in evolutionary thinking, what, what species do is that they evolve from single cell simple organisms to really complex organisms, a pinnacle, which is, is human beings. And so that's, a, you know, in a very, very simplified way, the, um, the, the evolutionary theory. Now, Lombroso and Morel and others believe that there's also a counterforce to it, which is degeneration, that some individuals are through generations and through interbreeding with other degenerates or atavistic Uh, uh, beings, they slide down the evolutionary scale. So an an atavistic person or a degenerate person, a person who's devolved, there's somewhere between human beings and, and let's say, apes, you know, there's the next evolved animal, I don't know, is it cats or is it the apes? Somewhere up there, you slid down to being not entirely human. And the idea here is that you can find, you can detect signs of degeneration. You can detect physical signs, like we were talking about facial features and so on. But you can also detect it in moral signs. So if a person, for example, 
um, is of you know, loose morals, they're criminal, or if they have mental illness, so it moves beyond the moral realm. So mental illnesses, um, use of slang, uh, specific kinds of phrases, pain tolerance, and so on, apparently was higher in the degenerates. So from the idea that you can detect these people who are not fully human, um, then psychopathy researchers took the, the premise that psychopaths are somehow similar to that. Now, there weren't many mentions in psychopathy literature from the 19th, or sorry, from the early 20th century on about psychopaths being degenerates, but the language they use is very similar. They talk about psychopaths as not fully human. There are all kinds of references to psychopaths being predators, as being insect-like, being reptile-like. If someone even mentions specific kinds of reptiles that psychopaths resemble, there's all, all this sort of semi-scientific, or quasi-scientific, or sort of scientific, rather, discussion about the psychopathic eyes. And this is how you get to this idea that, like, psychopaths had the eyes of goats, which we talked about in the episode. Now, if you have not ever seen goats' eyes or, like, looked at them closely, you should look them up because it's not just like, oh, it's kind of weird that they would have eyes of goats. Like, goats have really bizarre-looking eyes. They have these really rectangular pupils. Uh, So you should look it up because it'll sort of make you realize just how bizarre that claim is. Now, a couple of people uh, posted in the Facebook group or emailed me asking about a psychologist named Jim Fallon, who popularized the psychopath test and the psychopath brain and genes a couple of years ago. He has a really popular TED Talk. He has a book um, all about how he himself has the brain signature of a psychopath and kind of like what that's like to navigate. Um, It probably won't surprise you to hear that Yarko and Steph were not really fans of this whole shtick. There's a researcher, if you heard of James Fallon, Who's yeah? So he, for example, found that he had the psychopathic or serial killer, killer pattern in his brain. He had the low activity amyloid gene that third of the male population has, and then he found that there's lower activity in certain parts of the brain that he believed indicated uh, psychopathy. And what was interesting interesting about that is not just the fact that really there is no psychopathic pattern pattern the. the uh, studies. Some studies find that there's increased activity in certain parts of the brain. Some found there's decreased activity, and most of them find no differences. But of course, Fallon had found the ones that sort of match his brain. But what's interesting for us about that is that why would he be proud of this? Why would he have a whole TED talk about the fact that he has a psychopathic brain? Now, so the brain idea itself is of no interest to me because we I mean, know it's not really panning out as, as we thought it would, but the fact that it was good news for him in a sense that he had the pattern. So now he can sort of claim to be set apart from the rest of humanity, that he has this particular capacity for a serial murder. We assume, of course, that none of us has, except for those people born into it, has this capacity for serial murder. I mean, murder is really easy. I mean, all you need to do is swerve your car a little bit to the right in a dark alley and, you know, kill someone or, you know, kill an, uh, a, a victim who can defend themselves, which is usually what happens with serial murder. So it's, it's extremely easy. 
But we, we have this mythology about serial murder, that it takes a brilliant mind to be able to do it more than once, that you don't get caught, but we know it's really difficult to catch serial murderers. So, in a sense, it's one of the easiest things to do is to kill a lot of people and get away with it. But the mythology that you have, you have to be brilliant to be able to do it, is what factors into this idea that, you know, if you, like James Fallon, has this serial murderer's brain, it means that not only do you have the capacity to kill, but you're also brilliant. Somehow you're brilliant. Um, you know, not only do you have the capacity to do something evil, get away with it, but you also have the extra moral muscle to not act on it. So here's a person who is more powerful than the rest of us. He could exercise his bloodlust, but he chooses not to. So you have, in a sense, you have this secular saint who makes the, the case to simply based on neuroimaging. Put him in a cape. He's like a superhero, right? Exactly. Yes, <laughs> but, with, but with this compelling, complicated backstory, which is like the contemporary superhero. It's like you, you can't be a cookie cutter stereotype. There has to be this really engaging, compelling backstory. I know, and nobody's interested in uh, you know, the, the, the born criminal who ends up being a car thief, you know, a repeat offender who, who steals cars for life. We don't think that would be a cool born criminal to be, even though the most criminals are like that. The, you know, the most chronic offenders are people who, you know, commit property offenses like theft of car, theft from car, and so on. So the most likely born criminal, if there ever was one, was probably somebody who does these high frequency uh, offenses. Now, we can't predict who becomes a mass murder or a serial murder because it's such a low frequency event. So that's kind of a dead end in trying to find any kind of similarities there. The only thing we can pretty much say is that mass murder and serial murder typically is a male. And that's about it. But, you know, if you're looking for an explanation for criminality, you probably should look at the really not sexy crimes. But of course, people like James Fallon go for the sexiest explanation because there you also, you can insert yourself into the story. Now imagine if I had a TED talk that was, I was a born, you know, uh, car thief. And that probably wouldn't go anywhere because it's just not a cool crime. It's probably harder these days now that the ca- all cars have those traffic lights. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, I'll take that back. Yeah, yeah or like <laughs> a, a, a born public mischief maker. Yeah, exactly. Or something yeah. like that. You're always drunk in public or trespasser. Something. Trespasser. Yeah. <laughs> You're a born trespasser. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, it's it's partly it's again that not wanting to tackle the more difficult ways of either dealing with or trying to understand the causes of the crimes that disturb us. Like, I mean, if you look at mass killings, the most straightforward way to address those would involve gun control, but nobody seems to want to have those conversations. They must happen if you want to do something about it, but no one wants to do that. So the easier thing to do is focus on the individual. And I mean, you know, as someone... I think rather tongue-in-cheek pointed out in reviewing Fallon's book, he does have one of the significant predictors of psychopathy, which is a Y chromosome. Is that going to be a helpful discussion to have about, you know, Y chromosomes being the predictor for all these sorts of things? I don't think so. 
Plus, this whole idea that you can test psychopaths and see if they are going to commit crimes uh, is not really true. The test is actually pretty badly designed and doesn't work particularly well. You know, if you want to predict someone's behavior in the future, their past behavior is the best thing you've got statistically. And that's completely uninteresting, you know, to say that, well, whatever you did before, you'll probably do again. And somebody will say, like, I needed a psychologist to tell me that. Um, Or maybe you just needed a psychologist to remind you of that and that there's usually nothing that does any better than that in terms of prediction. But we would love for there to be something that works better. And that's exactly with psychopathy, too. What you know, psychopathy, we usually think of it in terms of factors or facets. Now, there are just 20 diagnostic features, which can be divided into factors and facets. And it turns out that the factors and facets are part of it. So factor, there's usually divided into two factors or three factors. So X number of symptoms are in factor one, X number of symptoms are in factor two. And factor one is what people conventionally think about as psychopathy, so the cold, calculating, remorseless killer, completely lacking in empathy. I mean, that's the factor one items. Yes. And factor two items are basically about criminality. You you know, you've committed crimes before, your parole's been revoked, you started committing offenses when you're young, you commit many different kinds of offenses. So basically just past behavior. So if you look at psychopathy, factor one, the psychological part, the cold, callous, unemotional stuff, that doesn't predict anything. It's a really poor predictor of criminality. What predicts, unsurprisingly, is factor two, the past behavior stuff. But of course, we're so enamored with with the sort of the cold, callous presentation that we think of psychopathy as being the factor one thing. Whereas in fact, factor one is this kind of dead weight there. It doesn't help us predict. It's just, it's what sells the idea. But factor two, past behavior, is what what allows us to use the PCLR in the criminal justice system, for example. Um, Another thing on the episode we talked about is this idea that protesters in certain cities must have had something neurologically wrong with them, right? Um, This idea that people who were rising up against racial inequality, racial abuse, were, you know, mentally unstable in some way. Um, Starting in the 1960s, Black Americans started getting diagnosed with schizophrenia at way, way, way higher rates than white Americans, even though there is no evidence that schizophrenia is actually more prevalent in Black people. Um, But because doctors and white people in general felt threatened by Black folks, they started pathologizing them in this very specific way, saying like, no, 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 we're not racist. It's that these people have this scary, dangerous mental illness. Um, But there's a really interesting backstory to this um, that I think sort of just extra illustrates how some of these diagnoses can be used and changed based on cultural assumptions, based on racism, based on sexism, all that fun stuff. Um, Because between the 1920s and the 1950s, the mainstream sort of American medical and popular opinion about schizophrenia was totally the opposite of maybe what you think about schizophrenia being today. So in the 20s through the 50s, um, doctors and pop culture sort of 
painted people with schizophrenia as largely white and as generally harmless to society. In fact, people with schizophrenia were usually considered like intellectuals. They were, you know, really in their minds. They were creative types. Um, in In 1935, the New York Times wrote about how many white poets and novelists demonstrated, quote, one of the telltale phrases of schizophrenia, the mild form of insanity known as split personality. Um, So schizophrenia in the 30s and the 40s and even the 50s was seen as this very passive, heady, intellectual, white, harmless thing. It wasn't until the uprisings of the 1960s that that description shifted. In the second DSM, the sort of diagnostic manual that people use, suddenly schizophrenics were being described as masculine and aggressive and dangerous. Um, And with that, all of a sudden, the racial demographics of the diagnosis changed. And all of a sudden, Black people were being diagnosed with schizophrenia all over the place, where it used to be kind of a white coded disorder. You can even find advertisements sort of showing this. So in 1974, there is an ad for Haldol in an issue of the Archives of General Psychology that shows an illustration of a black man with his fist clenched in kind of the black power fist. And his face is sort of contorted in this like very cartoonishly angry expression. And on the ad, it says, assaultive and belligerent cooperation often begins with Haldol. Um, and and the disparity in diagnosis persists to this day. So to this day, doctors still overdiagnose schizophrenia in black patients. You could read a lot more about this history in a book called The Protest Psychosis, How Schizophrenia Became a Black Disease by Jonathan Metzl. Now, Liat Ben-Moshe, who you heard on the episode, comes from a field called madness studies. And we didn't have time to like get into what that means on the episode, but I think it's super interesting. And um, I've been reading work in this field for a while, and it's really changed the way that I think not just about my own mental health stuff, but also about how to talk about mental health diagnoses on the show and kind of like what words to use. So I come from um, work in disability studies and med studies, and those fields look at disability and madness and also neurodiversity or what some people call autism uh, as uh, lived experiences uh, and as um, manifestations of identity that have a culture and a history behind them. So I identify as a disabled person. Uh, I am a disabled person. And, uh, but until I met other disabled people who are politicized as disabled, I didn't know we actually have a culture and a history, you know, and shared humor and language and a whole slew of resistance movements and knowledges and art forms and, anything you can think of that's related to identity formations. And so madness is the framework of understanding that under what some people call uh, mental illness or mental health differences, but uh, a lot of people who kind of reclaim that uh, aspect of their lives as either something that's neutral, uh, I mean, not necessarily negative, not necessarily always positive, Uh, you know, just like being a woman or being queer. Sometimes it's amazing and sometimes it sucks, you know. And um, so madness is is a way to reclaim that identity. Um, And it is also attached to a particular formation that uh, we call mad pride. There's also disability pride, crip pride, neurodiversity, uh, deaf pride. 
And uh, Med Pride is people who not just reclaimed it as kind of this is part of my lived experience, this is part of my life, this is part of my history and culture, but also to say this is something I'm proud of um, as uh, a person who identify as mad or disabled or deaf and so on. So some people who identify as mad go all the way to pride and some people don't necessarily go all the way to pride. The, the second thing I would say about that that I think is related to the episode is that madness is a way to um, reclaim identity, but also to critique the construct of mental illness. And that is to say that uh, mental illness is something that we take for granted, um, that it's something that people always had, but it's not true. A mental illness is a linguistic and um, otherwise construct or linguistic metaphor, really. There is no illness of the mental. <laughs> there is no in illness of the soul, illness of the... Um, it's something that we, uh, as a Western culture and society, have put on people as a diagnostic medical label um, starting in the 20th century. So really um, late in the history of mankind. So when people say there's always been people who are mentally ill, it's absolutely false. There's always been people who are crazy, um, insane, mad, but mentally illness, no. Um, mentally ill is no. So a lot of people who are mad um, disavow the category, um, the medical category and the consequences of medicalization that come with that medical category. Um, to say, you know, madness is a part of me. It doesn't necessarily have to be medicalized. It doesn't have to be psychiatrized. Uh, I don't have to be institutionalized. I don't have to have my kids taken away uh, and so on. So this history of institutionalization is directly tied to the history of prisons. You can't really separate them. Prison and policing came out of chattel slavery, which is something that we've talked about on the show before. Um, and there was even a theory that slaves that ran away from their uh, owners um, had something wrong with their brains. This was called drapetomania. It was coined in 1851 by a physician named Samuel A. Cartwright, who obviously worked in the South. Um, and he was seeing these slaves who would run away to the North. Um, where they could be uh, nominally free. And he thought, you know, there must be something wrong with them. Now, even at the time, this idea was mocked in the North. People in the North were like, of course this is not true. Of course someone would not want to be owned by another person and abused every day. Um, but in the South, there were doctors who believed this, that the only reason someone would flee chattel slavery is because they had some kind of psychosis. Um, and throughout history, prisons and institutions have used the same methods. So here is Elliot Fakui. A lot of people don't recognize that, like, psychiatric institutionalization or asylums and, like, prisons, the, the way we understand prisons today in the United States, actually started at, like, the same time um, and used a lot of the same methodologies in terms of, like, uh, solitary confinement, restraint, right, forced labor, um, so these histories are actually pretty deeply intertwined. I don't think you can actually talk about um, prisons and policing without talking about psychiatric medicine and uh, institutionalization. 
Now, the field of forensic psychology is relatively new sort of in the vast scheme of the world of psychology. And it was kind of um, invented in some ways to help make the criminal legal system better and more humane for the people going through it. So here is April Alexander talking about that. So many people in the criminal justice system um, do have some sort of mental illness uh, in their background. Uh, so there was a need over time for psychology to be involved in that system. Uh, how can we better inform policies, procedures, practices in a way that is more humane? And so over the years, that role has um, exacerbated in so many different ways as we're trying to figure out how can we add this kind of nuance into the field. And has it succeeded in in some ways in making it more humane and making it better? I believe so. Uh, we have to think back into when we had the overuse of state hospitals and mental health facilities. It was a disaster. You had people who were in these hospitals for long periods of time, isolated from their community, not getting treatment. Uh, so as we're learning more and more about this over time, I think the practice of psychology and its interface with the legal system is getting better. Um, are there some rooms to grow? Of course, uh, because we're still slow to move politically in terms of how do we treat individuals in a criminal justice system. A lot of Liat's work is actually about the process of deinstitutionalization um, and this movement to get people out of institutions that started in like the late 1950s. So the 70s uh, in the history of uh, deinstitutionalization in the field of psychiatric disabilities were about 15 years actually into it, uh, people often assume that deinstitutionalization of mental health happened like in the 80s. It did not. Uh, it started, the highest population was in 1955 in the US. And every year since, the population in psychiatric hospitals has uh, been less and less and less. And the major waves of closure have happened uh, in the 60s and then in the 70s. In the field of intellectual developmental disabilities, the 70s were huge in terms of starting the, the kind of process of closing down uh, institutions, either by uh, lawsuits, um, by consent decrees, uh, and so on. But they didn't actually close until much later, some of them in the 90s even, and depending on the state. Now, some people point to deinstitutionalization and argue that the closure of state psychiatric hospitals is the reason that there are so many people with mental illness diagnoses in prisons today, um, and that, that this sort of deinstitutionalization contributed to an increase in homelessness in a lot of states. Um, but Liat's work actually argues that that is sort of not the cause and effect that we should see here. The often what gets people sent in jail is the fact that um, some of these people are uh, more transient people, people who are housing insecure, um, and so on and so on. And we have completely demolished um, the public, you know, public spaces uh, in the U.S. And, and elsewhere, quite frankly, as well. So the fact is, you know, I'm a professor of criminology. We've criminalized being housing insecure. We've criminalized what it would mean um, you know, you can't be here, but also you can't be here. You can't be here. You can't sit here. You can't pee here. This is also closed. Where are people supposed to be? And so then to put that on like their madness and then criminalize it and then ask, why are there so many people with mental health differences in jails is ludicrous uh, because this is completely uh, kind of a policy um, issue. This is not a policy uh, issue of like fixing people. Uh, plus, it's very clear, and there's a lot of evidence, that simply being in prison often winds up disabling people. What I say, and a lot of people who have been inside say, 
Um, no, this is actually an inherent, intrinsic thing that is a character of um, jails and prisons in the U.S. Overcrowding, solitary confinement. Solitary confinement, by the way, is a euphemism for, um, think about, um, for listeners who have a home, think about like your house, think about your bathroom. Think about living in your bathroom, uh, if your bathroom is very small, and not if it's big. If it's big, cut it in half. If your bathroom is very small, think about living in your bathroom for weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years, sometimes 40 years. Um, so, and think about what that would do to your mental and physical health. How many of our grandmothers were given quaaludes? How many of our, how many survivors of domestic violence are sitting behind bars because they defended themselves. Is that madness? Is that an emotional crisis? Is that a biomedical condition? Um, I don't think we're asking the right questions. And I don't think we're, we're, I still think abled people don't really see neurodivergent people or disabled people as people. Um, and what terrifies me about that is, you know, it's, it's a hop, skip and a jump to decide to just throw an entire population away. I've been thinking a lot about that Ursula K. Le Guin quote recently, um, which says, what sane person could live in this world and not be crazy? Um, and that feels like very real to me. Um, and I think that there is kind of a real crisis coming, frankly, when sort of the lingering effects of the pandemic intersect with kind of the climate change impacts that we're seeing, the economic precariousness of an entire generation of people that is coming more and more to the fore. And frankly, I am not totally sure that we are ready for like what's going to happen to our mental health um, as a sort of generation, particularly the generations coming up. Um, it's just like a lot to handle. Um, and this is actually something that Elliot and I talked about. We're in a really scary time right now, right, where a lot more of us are going to be experiencing emotional crisis because we've literally been in a hell year. Um, what does it mean for us? to keep relying on systems that we know are designed to keep people medicated and to keep people incarcerated and not actually grounded in healing or looking at, um, you know, how does violence, how does day-to-day -day microaggression impact someone's mental health? Okay, so that is most of the stuff that we cut, sort of getting into the weeds on disability theory, the history of institutions, psychopaths, all that good stuff. Um, the last chunk of things that I did not get into um, on the show was sort of more about the actual implants themselves. So Sean Patel, who works on these neuroelectronic devices, had a lot to say about the potential of brain-computer interfaces. For example, we're speaking right now, uh, and to do that, we're using language. Uh, and that language or the information content of that language is limited. Uh, it's limited for a variety of reasons, but one is I have to actually produce these sounds and we're using English and English represents information in a particular way, which limits the amount of content it can store. Uh, and so people have actually studied this in all the languages across the world. And what's interesting is they roughly contain the same amount of information. 
but that's purely limited by our construct. Uh, if we had access to our brains, for example, the brain certainly has capacity to carry much more. I mean, it's just, it's strength. It's a, the ultimate parallel computer, and it uses such little power. And so we could really reconceptualize, you know, important core aspects of human behavior, like communication. Imagine if we could somehow communicate even without speaking, but we would be able to express the same content and sentiment, but you could understand a level or multiple dimensions more. You know, you might understand my kind of experience or state even today through this. Uh, you know, am I in a happy mood or sad mood or did something frustrating just happen? You might be able to understand context even beyond that. You know, me as a human being uh, on this planet, uh, what has been my path? What are my hobbies? What things do I think are funny? Uh, all this information exists, but in order to share that with you today, I have to kind of spend a lot of time with you and we talk and we call that friendship and, you know, we get to know each other, but there's no reason why that's limited. If we can actually transfer that exists in my brain, it exists in your brain. And if we could share that more readily, open the, uh, the pipe, so to speak, um, we could change the way we interact. I am sort of on record as being a little bit skeptical of some of these claims. Um, you know, Sean mentioned that we don't really know how the brain works. We don't really know where to interface with it, how to interface with it. I think that there is a lot of hype around uh, brain-computer interfaces, and some of that will come true and some of it won't. And so I'm always a little bit wary before I sort of say like, oh, yeah, we'll be able to like communicate our thoughts. You know, we've talked about this on the show before about telepathy and sort of like mind-to-mind -mind communication. I think it's a lot more complicated than um, – we might want to think, but it's still super interesting to hear kind of like what people are working on. Um, but there is sort of another possible side effect of this kind of sort of like brain control, brain interface, um, uh, particularly if we're talking about the sort of procedure that um, is in the episode. And Sean raised this um, kind of potential problem that I found really interesting. So if you hand over certain processes or types of decision-making to this implant, like what happens if later on the implant gets turned off or removed? I often think of the analogy of like uh, working out, right? So let's say uh, I'm weak. And so what do I do to get stronger? Well, I lift weights, right? Challenge my uh, musculoskeletal system. And as a result, my muscles grow and I get stronger. Uh, but what if I'm, again, I'm weak, an alternative would be like, Hey, Sean, I have this great kind of exoskeleton and it's going to instantly give you the powers of you know, uh, uh, a weightlifter. You know, I might be intrigued at that idea because it's easy and simple. Uh, and I think many people today would find that to be an alluring prospect. But what would happen is like, I would immediately gain those benefits, but that original issue that I had, which was my muscles are weak, they will only get weaker with the use of the exoskeleton. 
Okay, so that is pretty much everything that we cut. Um, You can see why this episode was longer than most episodes. There was so much interesting stuff to get into. I hope that you enjoyed both the episode and this bonus episode. Um, It was obviously very dark, but I found it really interesting to think and read about and learn about, and I learned a ton um, researching this episode, so hopefully you enjoyed it. A couple of other little things. So I mentioned this in the newsletter, but I am doing a little bit of experimentation with a couple small tweaks on the show this season. Um, The first is the name of the episodes. So episodes used to always be just like pun names, which were fun to come up with, but didn't always tell you clearly what the episode was actually about. Um, And I heard from some other podcasters uh, who have experimented with this, that when they changed their titles to be more descriptive, they had more success kind of... um, getting people to listen, which makes sense, right? If you are new to the show and looking through the catalog, or even if you're not new and looking through kind of like the back catalog or the recent episodes, um, and you're kind of wondering which one to start with, it's way easier to pick something that you might be interested in if you can like figure out what the episodes are about. So I've changed the way that the episodes are named this season. Um, It's kind of hard to do any kind of real testing on this. I can't really do A-B testing on episode titles um, to see sort of what works and what doesn't, but I'm trying it out and... um, I think we'll see what happens. Um, Also, you may have noticed that I've started weaving the stories from the future throughout the episode instead of just at the top. Um, Not every episode is going to have that, but I'm sort of starting to do that more, I think, um, which is sort of fun because you get a little bit more space to like develop a story throughout the episode. Okay, I think that's everything. Everything I cut, uh, a couple little updates, all that good stuff. Now on to the usual three sort of pillars of the uh, Time Traveler Dispatch, um, the tripod of ending these dispatches. Um, So number one is a story that I'm tracking. Um, I talked about this in the newsletter as well, and this is sort of less a single story and more like a vibe, a sense, like a thing that I'm sort of watching a little bit, and I I don't have the words exactly to describe it, but um, I'm just going to kind of talk about it a little bit here, which is climate change. And I know that climate change isn't like one story, and obviously I have been tracking climate change for a very long time now. Um, But um, I do think that in, at least in North America, this summer so far, we've seen some really direct obvious impacts of climate change, ones that feel very easy to say like, aha, that is climate change, right? Hundreds of people died in a heat wave and fires that swept through Canada a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's been hundred over 100 degrees in a lot of the Pacific Northwest, including down even down through um, Sacramento. Um, researchers think that possibly over a billion sea creatures have died from these heat waves. Um, the ocean was on fire not once, but twice in the past couple of months. Um, and I think that what is striking about this is that it feels like maybe – The conversation this summer is slightly different. So like people who I've never seen tweet or post about climate change are suddenly like, whoa, like what is happening? Um, And it feels like the conversation is slightly different. Um, It feels like maybe at least for a second and among certain sections of largely the U.S., right, the threat of climate change has shifted from kind of this like vague thing that you're aware of that feels like it's on the horizon, that feels very much in the future, to something that is a very real threat today. Now, obviously, this has been the case for many years. Obviously, there have been weather events that are very clearly tied. Obviously, in certain places with fewer resources than the U.S. has as a whole, the impacts have already been much more great, much greater, you know what I mean? Um, I I don't want to say that like all of a sudden people care about climate change. Like this is a very specific subset of people who I think 
you know, have always known that climate change is a thing, but maybe haven't quite felt that direct, intense, immediate fear of it that maybe are feeling that right now. Um, And that's like a very, very specific thing as opposed to kind of like a broader statement about climate change and its impacts. Um, And, you know, I think that's been really interesting for me to watch. I think it's been – I know it's been frustrating for some climate reporters to watch to kind of have them be like, yes, we've been saying this for so long. But I am wondering now if it's possible to seize this moment of like fear and very acute awareness among this particular population and turn it into some kind of action, right? And I I hope that that's true. I feel like there was so much um, conversation around, I mean, when you see the ocean being on fire because of a pipeline, like that feels like such a... I don't know, catalyzing an iconic and specific moment to be able to kind of like point to it and be like, okay, I draw the line at the ocean being on fire. Um, and maybe that means that we can do something. You know, I, I hope that that's true. I also hoped that the pandemic would have led to more changes in the way that we do things. Um, and instead there seems to be kind of this like almost like farcical obsession with returning to normal, um, going back to normal, reopening like normal, even if that normal was like hurting lots of people. Um, but I, I don't know. I like choose, I choose hope. Hope is an active practice as Maryam Kaba says. Um, and so I choose to hope that perhaps this time when it comes to climate change, these sort of impacts, these images, these heat waves, these direct specific things will spur people to take action and demand more from, you know, their elective officials, corporations, you know, getting involved, figuring out what they can do. Because it does sort of feel like there is this sudden people have like kind of woken up a little bit in this particular spot and way. I'm not sure. Um, but it feels like there's been a slightly different tone and vibe to the conversation around climate change this summer than there has been in the past. So we will see what happens. Um, Okay. Second thing is a book I'm reading, and this is sort of cheating because I got an advanced copy, but I am, I just finished this huge project that wrapped on Friday of last week. um, And I am excited to be able to tell you about it once it's announced. Um, It is a documentary podcast um, that will be coming out in September. Um, and I have to wait until I'm told that we can talk about it. So once I can, I will let you know. Um, and I was saving this book for when I finished that. So I finally get to start reading it. Um, and it's called The Actual Star by Monica Byrne, um, who is a science fiction writer who I have followed for a long time. Um, she's also on Patreon, um, and does really interesting, cool things with direct support and Patreon support. Um, and so I'm really excited to dive into it. Uh, so yes, I am reading The Actual Star by Monica Byrne. Okay, and then finally, a little secret, Um, as always. uh, My secret this week is that I started taking a wheel throwing class. So you probably have heard me talk about my pottery stuff that is my kind of hobby. Um, And for a really long time, well, for like a couple of years, I just, I feel like I'm still very much a beginner with pottery stuff. I started a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago. Um, But for the first two years, I was all in on like hand building, sculptural stuff. I didn't really have any interest in learning how to throw pots on a wheel. Um, I did everything by hand. Um, And I never really thought I would want to do a wheel throwing class. And then like six months ago, I think I just kind of got the itch and I was like, maybe it'd be kind of fun to learn. Maybe it'd be kind of interesting to learn. And so the pottery studio that is near me that I um, used to be a member of finally reopened their in-person classes. And the first class they were offering was beginners wheel throwing. And so I signed up. So I'm taking it. My pots are lumpy as hell. They are not good. It is really hard. It is one of those things. I knew it would be hard, but it is definitely one of those things where when you watch videos of people doing it, it they make it look so easy. 
And you know in your head that it's not easy, but even when you go to do it with your hands, you're like, what? <laughs> like, how is that possible? Like, how did you possibly do that? Um, so it's been really fun. Um, I, uh, I'm i learning. I'm not always the best at, like, sticking with something if I'm not good at it. So it's a good practice for me to just, like, be patient, suck at something in public, fail a bunch, and hopefully learn um, some new skills. So I'm excited about that. I will put um, – you can always find, like, po- uh, pottery – you know, ceramic stuff in my personal Instagram if you are interested in that. I don't generally put it on the show feed because there are certain people who are like, I don't care about your pottery. I just listen for the podcast. I would tell me about the the future. I don't care about your pottery, which is totally fair. So if you do want that stuff, uh, it's over on my um, regular main Instagram. Okay. That's it for this probably very long bonus podcast. Um, And I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you were having a good week and I will be back in your ears uh, a little bit later. Thanks.